0: So, Bob. As usual, we have a lot of really great questions from the patrons for us to answer. What do you say, Bob? Let's answer these questions. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirkonda. I'm a therapist, a professor, and a question answerer.
1: Who are you, Bob? <laughs> I'm your your every now and every fortnight question answer uh, therapist in practice here in Seattle, and your old friend from grad
0: school. Upper tier patron Joyce from Los Angeles says, Dear Kirk and Bob, last year I was diagnosed with borderline, with borderline personality disorder. Therapy has been a sobering and humbling experience. As I researched the traits of borderline in relationships, romantic and or platonic, articles online seem to lend themselves more towards people affected by a borderline parent, friend, or partner. The conversations between you two offer a nuanced and compassionate understanding of the diagnosis from multiple perspectives. I cannot express how invaluable your conversations have been. The podcast has become a safe emotional presence in my life that allows me to continue the work to look inward and do the right and do right by those I love. Hmm. Uh, changing the subject, all mental health professionals I've seen have been white, and I find it I find it to be a challenge when speaking of intergenerational trauma in immigrant families or anything related to racism. I appreciate your perspective as an Asian American and really wish that the mental health profession were more diverse. Why do you think this happens? What more can be
1: done? Bob, what do you think as a white person? The question is, why is it mostly white people that, uh, are, that, that do this kind of work? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's, well, okay, psychotherapy has its roots in the medical community in Europe. So that's white people, white men. Um it comes into the US in the 10s, 20s, 30s, white guys, doctors I think mostly. I don't know when we started having psychology degrees. Um in the 40s and 50s CBT comes online. That's medical doctors trying to help soldiers with with what has become known as PTSD. Um so a lot of the earlier writers are medical doctors so I'm thinking that it has its roots in the patriarchy right white patriarchy yeah and european so european right
0: um when we look to asia to japan china korea vietnam they don't have a uh, as robust of a tradition or really anywhere outside of central europe going back to the 1800s with freud mm-hmm. and others mm-hmm. of talk therapy talk therapy mm-hmm. was a and still is to a lot of communities around the world a very novel mm-hmm. idea a very strange mm-hmm. idea so the fact that it's dominated by white people is because it emerged out of the white world mm-hmm. and we might think well it, you know it's 140 years since freud started off it it's like well it takes it takes centuries apparently for things to change mm-hmm. and um yeah so it's a big problem it's not in in our field now it's not just white people it's 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 white middle class women um and that's good because a lot of women can feel safe in our field in a world when they don't necessarily feel safe all the time mm-hmm But on the other hand, uh, men don't necessarily feel safe, you know, Mm -hmm. because there aren't enough men therapists out there. There are a lot um, in our community, but in other communities, maybe not so much. In my early career, I remember I would get a lot of males, teenagers and adults coming to me. They're like, oh, thank God you're a man. I just want to talk to a male therapist. Have you ever had that before, Bob? No. Oh, well, I have. (laughs) Maybe it was mainly among teenagers because
1: they thought that these young men needed Mm -hmm. role models of some sort. But anyway. I do remember being in a DBT skills (laughs) class at the University of Washington in the research study. (laughs) And uh, all the research subjects were women. And what they'd say to me is, well, you're three quarters girl. So we're glad to have you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So now why, you know, why does this happen? In addition Mm -hmm. to what Bob is saying, uh, there's just racism. You know, uh, we live in a racist society. And thus, any institution within a racist society will also be racist, both as individuals and as uh, as a system, as an institution.
1: I like that sentence. Yeah, any institution in a racist society will also be racist.
0: Yeah, Brilliant. yeah. And uh, my professor in my doctorate, uh, one of my uh, best sort of mentors, Phil Cushman. He said that. And when he told that to me and I was just like, oh, my God. Yeah. Like that, you know, it had the same similar effect it had on you. It was just like, oh, yeah, of course. You know, because we tend to think of like, well, we have a racist society. Yeah, we all know that. But then we think, well, you know, this institution, it's not racist. But you're just like, well, of course it's racist <laughs> because it, it it's not like the society lives under the umbrella of psychotherapy culture. You know, psychotherapy culture exists within a racist society and a heterosexist society and, mm-hmm. and an ableist society and, you know, all, all the isms of society. Anyway, mm-hmm. so there is racism uh, among not only therapists, but also among admissions workers at universities. This is probably more of a problem for black people, but any non-white person is going to be, uh, at least through implicit bias, there's also a lack of role models. I mean, Bob, can you think of, just regarding Asian therapists, can you think of any famous, of course we can think of a lot of white famous therapists, but can you think of
1: any famous Asian therapists? One. Which, who? Jeez, uh, what's his name? I never met him. He's in the EFT community. He practices in China and uh, okay. Canada. Okay. So, so famous that you can't remember his name. I know, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> you oh, Mavis Tsai. Mavis saying Tsai? Mavis Psy? T- Mavis okay. Psy. Okay. She's at the UW. She is married to Bob Kolenberg. Do you know who he is? No. The functional analytic psychotherapy Would she people. be famous if she weren't married to him? Mm, I don't know. I think they write together, so I don't know if she writes solo. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think she's that famous, like... Like, you know, she's not going to be on Oprah, like that sort of thing. Right. Yeah. But, you know, among therapists. But, yeah. but you and
0: I could rattle off literally like oh. a, a hundred white therapists that are famous. Freud, mostly, Finansi, mostly men. Horn uh, Yeah. You know, you know, just Jung, just the whole line there. so yeah. Um, as an Asian person myself, you would think I would pick up on this sort of thing. And I can only think of a few famous people. And the main one is Insu Kimberg, who arguably wouldn't be famous if she weren't married to, uh, but, but she's a fantastic therapist. It's in Sushan focused therapy. And then we have Sue and Sue who write in our field as well. Um, but, uh, you know, obviously not household names. (laughs) Um, so there's a lack of role models. And when people see people like them doing things that they want to do, then they do it. Whereas if you as a young person don't see anyone like you doing what you want to do, then it's harder to feel like you're able to get into that field. And this is obvious in a lot of different um, venues. Um, So we need to have more role models. We need to uh, hold up diverse uh, individuals and highlight their diversity. Mm -hmm. And maybe that will help to attract people that are like them into the field. It's also as an Asian American, I can attest to this that psychotherapy is not a it's not seen as a prestigious career. Um, Asian Americans typically will be very oriented uh, on average of course we're talking about millions of people but on average are typically attracted to fairly prestigious types of jobs like medicine or dentistry or tech or law or something. You know, Asian Americans, um, depending on the country you're from, uh, there tends to be a a high value on education and career and occupation and financial stability and pragmatism in career. Uh, And this uh, translates into, and, and also Asian Americans, because of a lack of tradition of psychotherapy in their home countries, don't value that um, uh, that action, that that service. Uh, in the same, on the opposite end of the spectrum, when I meet Jewish people, or I have a Jewish client, they fit into therapy on average very easily. You know, I'll have Jewish clients that'll show up, and they just launch into. Th- you know, they know what therapy is. They they take to it really well. They're very vulnerable. Um, they like it, um, and they know what it is, and they're not uh, sort of hung up on anything. And why is that? Well, it's because, you know, uh, psychotherapy emerged from Jews in Europe. So, and at the beginning it was essentially just a Jewish central Europe profession. And, um, and in the beginning, if you were a young Jewish person, because it was one of the few things that Jewish people were allowed to do, then you were attracted to that. Anyway, so, um, it's just going to it's just going to take a long time for attitudes to change and stigma to be reduced. And so, the other thing is is a lack of out- outreach that universities and or, you know professional organizations c- can do. I know that they do a lot of outreach, especially these days, but maybe there's more they can do. Um, yeah. So, what can be done? Well, Asian therapists need to speak up more and show their face more. Asians need to answer the call. And instead of doing what their mom wants them to do and become a physician, if they want to become a therapist, then answer the call. Also, we need to reduce stigma, we need more outreach, and we need to reduce institutional racism at universities, which is a lot more prevalent than people realize or want to admit. Um, I wanted
1: to ask you about that. What was your experience in grad school? Most of our teachers were, I'd say, mostly, almost, vet, almost, like 95% white people. We had people. one we had
0: one black person.
1: One uh, black person in the uh, core faculty or all all faculty.
0: I I only remember one black faculty member and the rest yeah. rest were white.
1: Right. Yeah. So no Asian people. Yeah. And I don't recall any adjunct people that were they were all white yeah. and I think mostly women. Yeah, and it wasn't even talked about. I don't remember
0: no. anyone even bringing it up. Today no. today they'll bring it up. Today there there's uh, enough awareness that uh white professors are, are very quick to say uh that this is a problem. Now at mm-hmm. my university now we have a lot more diverse um faculty in my program, couple on family therapy, it's I think it's a majority non white. We have mm. we have um yeah, a lot of people of color and uh and that's helping to, you know, create a more safe space to, you know, be more attractive as a role model to other people. But to answer your question, um, I was so used to Asian racism by the time I was 25 and entered graduate school that I don't think I noticed it. Um, so, and it's complicated of course, and I don't remember anything overt happening. Um, there's a lot of microaggressions that probably happened, but, and it's also kind of a microaggression that it just wasn't even acknowledged, you know, that my difference or the racism I experienced, it just wasn't, yeah. it's just not even uh, brought up as a topic. Yeah. It's it's just like a non-issue. And uh, so maybe I could cite that as an experience. But I, I could also easily say that people were good about it and that They weren't jerk faces and they were open-minded. The other thing is, is I'm half Japanese and will often quote unquote pass as a white person. And so um, I'm guessing if I was full Asian, there would have been more of an issue. Mm. Um, Also, I'm a man. So I benefit from, you know, privilege Mm -hmm. there. And so maybe it offsets, you know, Mm -hmm. greatly offsets any kind of racism I would experience Mm -hmm. as, as a half person.
1: I don't think I ever asked you about it. Yeah. I don't think I ever mentioned it. I think that's one of the microaggressions is we've been friends for 25 years and I have, we've rarely talked about it and I've never asked you. And I don't know about my behavior. I, you know, I think this stuff's like bad breath. Sometimes it's hard to smell your own. How, how are things between us? Like I never asked you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
0: you're a supreme racist, Bob. Uh just joking. I know. Uh no. <laughs> uh no, I've never um had any displeasure or complaint. I on one hand have absolutely experienced um problems, but on the other hand it's it's pretty light, you know, and I'm mm-hmm. not going to say that it this is everyone's experience in my category, mm-hmm. but for me I I can honestly say when I study the racism that other groups experience and other people, even other Asians experience, um, the racism I've experienced personally Mm -hmm. has been um, pretty light. Not that I haven't. I mean, I've literally been called a chink and a Chinaman Mm -hmm. and a gook. And, you know, Mm -hmm. people have picked fights with me because I'm not white Mm -hmm. and I've had to, um, you know, fight back and. I've been pigeonholed like one just one example that pops in my head is when I first started working in antioch they and i don't know if this was a man thing or a young thing or an Asian thing, but everyone saw me as the tech guy, even at though, antioch? yeah <laughs> but, the, but but this was at a time when everyone was a boomer, all the mm-hmm. professors were like ninety nine percent were sixty uh, to 75. Mm-hmm. And so computers were, you know, these are people now who are like 75 to 85. So uh, back then, you know, now you, you'd you find a 60 year old and they might be pretty good with computers, but, mm-hmm. you know, 10, 20 years ago, uh, no. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so I was, uh, and it often annoyed me that Cause I really worked hard to be a good professor and I thought I was a good professor. And I thought mm-hmm. that my students really valued me as a, as a hardworking professor. And yet what was highlighted about me in the beginning was that I was good with computers <laughs> and that was my value on the team, you know? And I remember thinking like, one, I'm not that good with computers. Like I'm just better than you. and two like I'm not here to be I didn't I didn't take this job to help you with your fucking computers I came Mm -hmm. here to to teach because I'm a goddamn good teacher and my students appreciate me as a teacher and to be so I I didn't know if that was an Asian thing or a young thing or a man thing but I uh, and of course you can experience microaggressions as a man and as a young person younger person Um, and uh, but anyway uh, now, I will say that I'm getting real annoyed with TV and movies that don't have Asians in it. You know, I I recently rewatched The Descendants with George Clooney. Oh, yeah. And this happens on Hawaii. Hawaii. Yeah, I think on Kauai, I believe. Uh, actually, I'm positive it's from, on Kauai. And the entire movie, the plot, is that George Clooney is becoming the... Uh, recipient of a of I don't know generations of land ownership and on a you know Pacific Islander (laughs) you know uh, person of color shall we say island right and uh, and in the end you know he just he makes a good decision but throughout the movie there's no there's no Hawaiians there's no Asians they're in, they're completely in the background. They're, you know every once in a while you'd see a you'd see an extra that looked a little brown. The the entire movie is just dominated by white people. When you go to Kauai, it is filled with brown people. And mm-hmm. um and I think George Clooney is supposed to be partially a descendant from one of the Hawaiian kings. That's yeah. why he owns that that land.
1: Him and his family. Yeah. And he's
0: he's white as white. And right. his entire family is white. Like, Bo Bridges is his Bo cousin. That, but yeah. Right. <laughs> and I'm just... The first time I saw this 10 years ago, or whenever it came out, I, I didn't really notice it, you know, because it was just such a normal thing. But now I'm just getting really... You know, another thing is watching Cobra Kai. Have you seen... Have you watched Cobra Kai?
1: I watched the first season.
0: Yeah. I think the first season is all you need to watch. The second season mm-hmm. is pretty good. Third season, not so great. But the they're, one, doing a thing about karate, which is obviously Japanese. Mm. And they're in Los Angeles, which is, uh, if there are places with Asians, it's there, you know? And I, so I am getting tired of that. Now, is it ruining my life? No. But it's just it's just another acknowledgement that, like, I'm ignored and I'm always considered a foreigner and my Mm. people don't matter and no Mm -hmm. one cares about our our faces or our stories or, you know, just no one cares. And my my Asian ancestry in this country goes back 120 plus years And, Mm -hmm. and many, many Asians do. You know, they're Chinese families that go back farther than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my family has been in this... My Japanese family has been in this country longer than most white people's uh, ancestry goes back. I mean, there are plenty mm-hmm. of white people. It's just like, oh, yeah, my grandparents came from Germany or something. Yeah. And and yet they are assumed to be American-American. Right. And I am assumed, and anyone who looks like me is assumed to be, like, recently here. And, that, and yeah. that's the other thing. It's like whenever they do manage to write us into a story, the parents were immigrants. Instead, like, the one example that I have that I, I, I liked was this movie called Always Be My Maybe, which is a great Asian-American movie with, uh, oh, what's her name, Ali Wu, and I uh, can't remember the guy's name. But I anyway. love
1: that guy. He is so funny. The, the, but the, I the, haven't seen that the, film the, yet. but the, I the Korean, mean. Yeah, it's a great movie. Yeah.
0: It's a great rom-com. Uh-huh. And his dad is played by an Asian-American guy who doesn't have an accent. So it's one of the few examples where you have a an Asian American person, one that doesn't have an accent, which is strange. And then two, the parent doesn't have an accent. Yeah. That's like completely yeah. unheard of. Yeah. It, and again, it's not like there aren't immigrants from China or from other Asian countries. Okay. But the the thing I always say and I'm probably going to repeat myself when I talk with this about Bob <laughs> or, uh, with with Umberto. Mhm is imagine it as a white person, Bob. Imagine yourself. Mm -hmm. Imagine like every TV show and every movie and every commercial, white people were either just not there or they had an accent or on the off chance that they didn't have an accent, that the parents had an accent. Just Mm -hmm. imagine Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. every TV show you watch and you're Mm -hmm. just like, and, and you know you're not hating it. You, you like the story, and it, you know it's Asian Americans, it's Latino Americans, it's you know uh, Muslim Americans, it's you know various different uh, people. Mm-hmm. And there's not a single white person mm-hmm. ever in any, not just in one show, but in all the shows. It would feel weird, right? It would feel weird. You'd be like, "Are, are we just?" going to ignore the fact that we exist? Do do we not do we not live here? Is it do you not know where have we've been here? Yeah. And we're not and I am again I'm not talking about like a small group of people from like Papua New Guinea who ha, you know it, there there's probably a f, you know a percentage of people sure. from Papua New Guinea we're we're literally talking about like 5 to 7% of the United States. Yeah. Like we're talking about millions and millions of people. <laughs> we are. Right. And so the fact that we're just completely uh, non-existent mm-hmm. is... Um, it hurts, you know? Yeah. And it doesn't ruin my life, but my wife gets an earful whenever I we watch a show like like um, Cobra Kai. And I'm like, oh, Asian without accent. Good, you know? I'm <laughs> like, the one Asian... Um, and the first two seasons in particular were bad by season three, they had, they had a bad guy that was Asian, which was fine. Cause I'm, but he didn't have an accent. It's like, I'll take it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, but anyway, um, and Cobra Kai is under fire because they don't have any Asian American writers. They don't have any Asian American, um, people on the staff. And it's like, really? (laughs) Anyway, um, having said all that, uh, on the scale of racism <laughs> worlds, mine is minor compared to others. And I know that, you know, it's okay to bring it up anyway, but I just want to say that, um, you know, if you're black, if you're Native American, Indian, um, if you come from certain a certain background, if your accent is a certain way, if you look a certain way, um, you know, it's a constant battle that some people have to deal with that I just um I just don't. So, I want to acknowledge that, you know, that's my place. But mm-hmm. but anyway, I, I, how do we get here? Um, so upper tier patron Joyce, um yeah. I hear you and I'm with you obviously. <laughs> mm-hmm. An honest patron from New York says this is a question for kirk and bob can you provide advice to help manage a defectiveness schema so bob you've talked about how you have a defectiveness schema how you feel like there's something deeply wrong with you and that no Mm -hmm. one would really love you if they really knew you you know that kind Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. i have recently become aware of how deeply my life is impacted by my defectiveness schema my social anxiety isolation body shame interpersonal issues performance, work anxiety, all seem to be rooted in the schema that there is something inherently wrong or bad about me. I was wondering whether either of you have any suggestions to help manage this schema. Bob, what do you think?
1: Well, I'd like you to consider personal counseling if you're not already in it. And I'd like you to consider the possibility of establishing a safe relationship with the personal counselor so that you can talk about it and talk about your experience of however that manifests in your connection as it grows with that therapist, um, i I don't know your situation, obviously, but I do like the idea of you pushing your limits not 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 ignoring them, but pushing them a little bit, so like if you're not dating, date right, get yourself out there, give your brain a chance to at least see the defectiveness schema as it wants to manifest in, say, body shame or or, forgive me, I can't remember some of the other things that you said. Um, so I would like I like that idea. Um, I mean, how, I got, you, how do you second, deal with it?
0: Uh, does it, when,
1: when it crops up, how do you deal with it? Hmm. You know, how I deal with it? now is really different from how I dealt with it six or 12 months ago. Like it cropped up today because I had a tough interaction with a couple that I work with, with one of the members of the couple. I had a tough interaction last time I saw them. And I think before the defectiveness schema would have been like, oh, Mia culpa, Mia culpa, nail me to a cross. I'm such a bad guy. I can't believe I did that and grovel. At least if I, if not out loud and overtly, then at least in my heart to feel like a big you know, asshole, excuse me for swearing. Um, Now, today, um, the way I view it is, it scares me. I have inklings, not inklings, that's the wrong word. I have waves of that kind of fear that I'm some kind of bad actor. And I also can hold up the other end, which is um, basically a quote from Wayne's World, which is, Led Zeppelin didn't write songs that everybody else would like. They left that to the Bee Gees. <laughs> and the, the truth is, is that I don't need to be liked. And as I was watching this tough interaction unfold and then watching the fallout, not the fallout, the consequences of that in the session, I thought there might be lemonade in this lemon. Like this thing that I would have called bad or wrong six or 12 months ago. I'm like, I don't know if it's bad or wrong, but I am watching something unfold here between this, these two people that hasn't unfolded. And that maybe the they say the oysters answer to irritation is the pearl. The pearl is the oysters answer to irritation. I saw this couple starting to make a really significant pearl and I don't know that they wouldn't have made made it if I didn't get into a thing with one of the one of the members of it and push. And her letting me know she didn't like the way I pushed. And me acknowledging that. And like, yeah, I get why you didn't like that. I don't I don't think I like it either. And I'm not gonna stay stuck here we still have work to do, seem like a catalyst to me. So so my point is the following. My defective schema would want to scream at me that I'm a bad guy and I'd want to, you know, roll away in shame, uh, which is not good for them and not good for me either. Um, and instead, it's more like the Led Zeppelin thing. And that's what you have repeatedly reassured
0: yourself that it's, Essentially, okay and normal to be disapproved of sometimes. And that doesn't mean that there's something deeply wrong with you.
1: The disapproval may not have anything to do with me. Yeah. Like, it's okay. Um, so it's making me reframe the way I understand other people's disapproval. Right. Like, as their disapproval as opposed to my disapproval. Right. Exactly. Like, if you disapprove of me, then I am indeed disapprovable. Whereas maybe you can disapprove of me and like, okay, well, I can live with that. And I can also see where that might not be my table. Right.
0: Yeah, I think that's good advice for all of us, honestly. (laughs) Yeah. For me as well. Just like, Mm -hmm. okay, you disapprove of me. um, But that doesn't mean that I am disapprovable. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's normal to be disapproved. You know, your behavior is disapproved of sometimes, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. either through misinterpretation or accurate interpretation. Yeah, right. And um, that doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. It just means that someone didn't like what you did. You know,
1: we know that for a fact.
0: Upper tier patron KG from Canada says, "I appreciate your so so much. I'm a master's counseling student in Vancouver." And I wanted to bring up a class dynamic that's been troubling me. Before each class, we have a check-in where we all tell everyone how we are doing. The professors do not discern whether it's optional or not. I have had a... I've had to repair broken boundaries from living with a borderline personality disorder mom. I was in a high-control group as well. So it's uncomfortable to not be asked for my consent. But the social norm in the class is pressures me into the check-in experience. Plus, I'm unclear on whether this is counted as participation marks. How do I speak up about this? Lots of people are bonding through oversharing, and the instructors let the leaky boundaries and rescuing continue. Can you speak to these counseling dynamics, uh, counseling class dynamics? Bob, what do you think?
1: Well, leaky boundaries is an opinion, not a fact. Um, So oversharing is an opinion not a fact your opinion makes sense but i'd like to be clear that it is an opinion not a fact i you said this you sent this question to me last night and i was thinking about it and i was thinking yeah this person's angry understandably so doesn't like what's happening doesn't know the rules like is it optional that's an important question if i choose not to participate What's the consequence? That's an important question, too. There might be a social consequence if you decide not to. But you're wondering, is there actually an academic con- consequence? To me, this is a question to take to your professor outside of class. I wouldn't do it in class because it's just, it's, it's too fraught, right? There's too much pressure. There's too much, you know. So I would take it up with the teacher or teachers outside of class and ask these questions. And to the best of your ability, make sure you're asking what you want to know, but ask in a matter-of-fact way. If you go in there with six guns blazing, you're probably not going to get the result that you want.
0: Yeah. And acknowledging that you have traumas about yeah. people oversharing and invading you and forcing you to share and that it's valid to feel uncomfortable about that. And a good psychology professor will hear that and accommodate yeah. for you for sure. Um, but yeah, I agree. It is an opinion that it's oversharing and invasive, um, because it's it's a very common process, and I've never known a student not to enjoy this. In fact, for a long time, I didn't do check-ins because I'm not, I'm am I'm pretty introverted as a student, and so I didn't I, I never really liked the check-ins personally. <laughs> but and for years, I taught my case consultation class, and I didn't I didn't have check-ins. Um, I would. I would give these uh, forms out for people to fill out, and then they could sort of use that as a introverted way of communicating with me anyway. And then I would ask them on the form, do you want me to bring this up? And so they could communicate with me on the form, and -hmm. then they would optionally opt in to bring stuff up in class and... Mm -hmm. Over time and it worked pretty well, but the con was that it just didn't give a chance for everyone to check in on mm-hmm. how they're doing, what their mood is and what's on their mind, and for other people to hear it and to bond around it mm-hmm. and a few years ago i uh, I think a student actually said, "Can we do check-ins?" And I was like, "Oh okay, and I just never stopped it, and I got rid of the form mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, it's a great way for students to relax. Mm-hmm. To get into the mood of the class, to bond, to get support from each other, mm-hmm. to normalize the struggles, and it's a it's a very very useful thing. Now, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, particular patron KG from Canada. If if you don't like to do it, then th- then just don't. I, I mean, I have plenty of students who f- will frequently in check in. They'll just be like, "Yeah, I'm good." And I'll be like, okay, next person.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so, you know, uh other people, quote unquote, might overshare and that's good for them. And you don't you don't have to involve yourself in that. You can just sit mm-hmm. back and and sort of zone out. But it is a it is a good opportunity to for people to get stuff off their chest, get support and to communicate about things. And so, you know, and it'd be different if you were in a different field. I mean, you're getting a masters in counseling mm-hmm. So it sounds like there's something about this that is triggering you that I would definitely look at because you're going to have clients that are going to share a lot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And as a therapist, you got to share stuff like Mm -hmm. you cannot not share. You've got Mm -hmm. to open up and um, share things to your supervisors and your classmates and your instructors. Mm -hmm. You cannot be a person that is like, look, you know, don't invade my space that – I get the trauma response, and so I would heal from that. But Mm -hmm. um, if you were in a different field, then you could draw boundaries and not have it affect your work. But this is going to be a a central Mm -hmm. healing for you and a central Mm -hmm. uh, development of coping style. Where, um, like, I could see a scenario where a year from now you've told all your professors that you have this trauma, and you tell them, some days I'm going to want to share and some days I'm not. Mm -hmm. And how how are we going to be able to communicate about that? Mm-hmm. Um, but that's sharing, right? You got to share to your professor <laughs> mm-hmm. that you have that issue. And so um, I, I would really worry about your well being without that mechanism of sharing and without getting support. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that, that's, it's critical. And I, I see people who don't do that as novice therapists and they crumble emotionally under the pressure. And so um, for your sake, I would, you know, find someone you do feel safe with and really establish some, uh, I don't know, some ground rules or guidance or protocols or something. All right, let's take a break. We get back. Let's answer more questions. What do you say, Bob? Yes. All right, we're back from the break. Will we get to all the questions? It's possible, Bob. Hmm. Anonymous Patron writes in, I have been suffering from depression and social anxiety for a while, and I've been recently looking into going to therapy. I found a therapist that is mainly a family therapist in systems theory, but she says she treats individuals as well. I'm a little hesitant because of her being a family therapist and not specialized in depression or anxiety. I have tried CBT before, and it did not work for me. There is a lot of tension within my family that has made me the scapegoat, if you will, So I could see maybe it helping to work with a family therapist in systems theory. Do you think a family therapist could treat an individual with long-term depression, or will I be wasting my money? Would love to hear your thoughts.
1: Actually, what I want to know is what you think. You have a background (laughs) in family therapy, and I do not.
0: Yeah. Um, So your question is, can a family therapist help you with depression? Yes, of course. Uh, And it's worth a shot. And family therapists definitely use systems theory but they use all the theories they use all the same theories as anyone else would cbt etc but they tend to work more relationally so uh, there's that like me and bob for example bob comes from mental health counseling world and i come from the family therapy world and yet him and i are very similar in the Mm -hmm. way that we provide therapy and the way Mm -hmm. that we see things so um it's hard to know if you're going to a quote-unquote you know family therapist if It's the sort of therapist that would be good for you. And in the same way, it'd be hard to know if you went to a mental health counselor, if they're going to be best for you. It's just, you just got to try them out. So that's my answer to that. Does that make sense to you, Bob?
1: Yeah, agreed. I have a lot
0: of emails about people asking about becoming a therapist, a lot of aspiring therapists, patron Marius from Romania says, what would you suggest to people who aspire to be therapists in countries where therapy is stigmatized? The neglect I suffered in my past made me want to help people who are going through hard times, but the situation in Romania makes it that people don't consult therapists since that's for crazy people. I plan on enrolling in a master's of clinical psychology. I would like to hear
1: your advice. Bob, what do you think? I don't know. Um, Well, I think, you know, best you're, there are some obstacles to success, maybe to finding a place to work or starting your own practice because of, you know, um uh, cultural beliefs that you know people in Romania hold so you're you're up against it but this is not dissimilar from the the thing that the other person earlier mentioned about how come there aren't any asian folks represented you know you just see white people um um you will be blazing a trail yeah and it is going to be hard right
0: so it's hard to know because – and I think Bob is feeling this tension too – is that if you want to be a therapist, then go for it. Yeah. But on the other hand, if there's no market in Romania for your to, – to work, then maybe that isn't a good idea, right? hmm So um, mm. on one hand, uh, the fact that there's – it's so stigmatized means that there aren't enough therapists for the people who need therapists in Romania. On the other hand, if it's so stigmatized, no one goes to therapy <laughs> – then I would definitely research your job prospects. But, uh, you know, I've never heard a situation like this being a problem. I'm guessing maybe it is sometimes. But if it is your calling and you want to do it, I would definitely look into it, and I would definitely ask those few therapists that are practicing, like, so what are my job prospects and how do I get there? Because you don't want to graduate into a society that can't support your occupation. Yes, Patron Brenna from California says, what is your opinion on aspiring therapists with a lot of childhood trauma? Do you feel that these people are able to become successful therapists after working on their own traumas? I'm currently applying to MFT programs, but I'm afraid that I would not make a good therapist. Bob, what do you think?
1: Well, we can't know because, you know, I don't even know how to assess such a thing. This is my standard answer. If you think you if you think if you want to do it, go give it a shot. Give it a try. Go do it. I don't think that childhood trauma necessarily will have – you're, you're, gonna, you're likely to be challenged in some ways. The things that you come across in your clients are likely to raise some counter transfer inside, inside you or just your own trauma responses to the things that you encounter. And if you're willing to kind of do that – it's not going to happen all the time – but if you're willing to kind of go through that, great. You might pick and choose who you work with so that you limit that if you need to, but – I think a lot of people who have trauma histories just make this presumption that they wouldn't make a good therapists. I have a pretty extensive trauma history and I've never had that thought and you're an I excellent therapist. Pre- yeah, I'm I'm pretty good. I know my way around the block. So, so my leaning is to encourage you. You're probably the fact that you're even asking this question suggests a level of insight that's going to suit you. I think you should go for it,
0: right? And The only other thing I'll say is everyone has trauma to some degree. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's just that you know it, emailer. (laughs) Right on. Anonymous patron from Hawaii, she says, I am an elementary art teacher, elementary Mm -hmm. art teacher, Mm -hmm. and very happy with my job. However, I find that throughout my life, and especially recently, many fields open up to me when, or many friends open up to me when Mm -hmm. they are having a hard time. I really appreciate and like being in that role of listener. It makes me wonder if a career switch to counseling might be a good fit. Are there personality qualities that make for better therapists? P.S. I am married to a Hapa, and therefore we have a child who is a Quapa. And I love when you talk about the specialness of Hapa culture. End of email. Just chiming in again, Hawaii married to a Hapa. Big surprise. <laughs> Descendants, uh, hardly any Asians in the entire movie. Um, and and I'll I'll tell you, I've never heard that term, quappa but I know instantly what it means, which is instead of half-a, you are now quarter-a. <laughs> and uh, I like that a lot. Um, so um, this anonymous patron from Y is, she's asking, are there any personality qualities that make for a better therapist? Bob, what do you think? I have no idea. Are there? No. <laughs> I uh, I have seen all sorts of personalities succeed in this business yeah super compassionate people super i would say cold people <laughs> and and they can be good therapists they can mm-hmm. learn to be compassionate super directive people super flaky people super driven people super nice people super not so nice people and i've seen them all succeed so I, I i don't i don't think there is a personality trait it stands to reason that there would be but it's a profession and you learn it and as long as you aren't But, you know, even I think some psychopaths can be actually good therapists as well. So I think if you have the desire and you feel like you enjoy the action of listening Mm -hmm. and investigating people's psychologies, then I'm guessing Mm -hmm. that, you know, you'll you'll do what it takes to be effective.
1: This person already has some evidence that they're good at it. Their friends approach them and they have this intuition about themselves. So,
0: yeah. And they're a better person than other white people because they married a happy person. Yeah, Exactly. Uh, Anonymous patron says, what is your opinion on therapy styles where the therapist uses examples from their own life or talks about themselves while giving you advice? It's it sometimes feel like a conversation with a close friend rather than understanding deep work when my therapist does this. But I see the value in it as well. So, again, what's your opinion on therapy styles where the therapist uses examples from their own life or talks about themselves while giving you advice? Bob, what do you think?
1: I talk about myself with regular frequency to normalize experience, particularly trauma experience. Well, not particularly that, but sometimes that. So, But what I'm hearing in this email is that this person doesn't like it when their therapist uses personal examples. My question is, is how safe do you feel bringing that up? Right. Yeah, that's the key, is that there's
0: always going to be some tension there. And by all means, everyone out there, if you... Don't like something about your therapist, tell them yeah and and I could follow this advice too, because, as a client myself, I rarely will say anything <laughs> I one oh, time yeah. uh my therapist uh, a therapist in the past, she was pregnant and probably not sleeping very well, you know she was very pregnant, and she I think fell asleep in the middle of a session, at least oh. her eyes were very, very closed. <laughs> mm. <laughs> and I get it, you know, I can ramble, uh, for sure in therapy, uh, <laughs> and anywhere, anywhere else, but particularly therapy. And so I get it and it didn't bother me that much, but mm. I didn't say anything. You know, I, 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 what I wanted to say was, you know, if you need to take a break, just tell me, cause I, I'd rather have you like stand up or tell me to shut up or something than to just talking to someone with their eyes closed. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh you know, in a compassionate way. Like I, I've been there as a therapist, you know, we're just having a hard day and, and you're really trying to hold on, you know, to benefit the client, but then it, you know, it backfires and instead of you just taking action, like I need to, I need to take a break and sort of wake myself up. Um, so, you know, and I didn't say anything and, and I, I just recommend that, you know, if you have a therapist that's talking a lot about themselves and, and you're, you're just like kind of bored with it or you, you feel like it's not real therapy, Mm -hmm. you know, just tell them, Um, just tell them, hey, I, you know, I I find that when you talk about your own life, I'm getting a little annoyed. Mm -hmm. And any good therapist will be mortified by that and be, oh, my God, thank you for telling me. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I'll definitely change. I I thought I was doing something that was helping people. And this is kind of my style, but I could definitely, you know,
1: scale that back. Um, And even go further than that. Like, what's it like to tell me? Yeah. Like, because like, there's something important to be, I think there's something useful to be learned about there. My therapist is chronically late. He's late somewhere between two and four minutes for every session. Huh. Well, with and those long legs, that, you think you'd think he'd be early. You'd think. <laughs> yeah. Actually, with COVID, you'd think
0: he's home. Yeah. How are you <laughs> late to a home
1: appointment? Right? Yeah. And it used to, Bother me, and I wouldn't say anything, and then I did say anything, and that led to a tremendous amount of shame for me being you know frustrated or disappointed in him or angry with him, and there was this really interesting tension between you should be on time and you're not, so me with my judgment that you should be on time because you know this is the work that you do um um and you're not led to um let's see how can I say it he's still late now I'm late. Um, or I don't sweat being on time so much for for my meetings with him. I still strive to be on time uh, for, for my clients, but I don't sweat his lateness. And we can still talk about it. We still joke about it. I still don't like it. And I don't think I need to like everything that he does or is. And... We get to keep talking about it. That's what's great about therapy relationships is it's not one and done. You get to keep talking about it. So my uh, imagine is it's going to come around again. And the learning for me is it's safe to raise a complaint. It's safe to say, yeah, today this bugs me. Um, Whereas before I would be like, oh, I'm going to eat this one and feel resentful. And, you know, they say resentment's like taking poison and hoping the other guy dies. So I, I don't have to go through that. And he's still late. Yeah. So that's his weirdness. I don't know. Do you go over? Huh? Do you go over because to compensate, or sometimes if he's more late, then yeah, he'll he'll extend the session. But if it's just a couple minutes, does he he say why he's late? Um, Yeah, occasionally he'll say bathroom break, or had to eat something, or had to make a cup of tea, or something. Um, Usually, if he says anything, it's usually stuff like that.
0: Was he late in person? Yeah. And similar reasons? Bathroom?
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so, in an ideal universe, we would be on time. I get it. And in this universe, that's not what happens in my counseling sessions. And we make lemonade out of the lemon. Yeah, I'd still rather he were on time. Yeah. But I also have gotten something really beneficial in having it happen and having to talk about it. Like, I don't know that I would have. Yeah. At the um, same time, I just want to say, it's extremely annoying
0: in any context, but particularly maybe. therapy, man. I mean, like, be on time, people. Like, maybe, it's not hard. It's annoying. I, I I think I think once in a while, maybe. But as an extremely punctual person myself, well, right, I find it just boggling. Like, yeah, it, if if you you know if you're the sort of person where it's like, huh. Um you know like let's say you have like a doctor's appointment once a year and you don't mm-hmm. really know the route and you don't know the parking lot and you arrive a little late because you just mm-hmm. you didn't gauge it right you know mm-hmm. i would get that but if you're a therapist you're literally doing this multiple times a day mm-hmm. and if you can't get your s together you know like f- just to harp on your therapist for just people like ah, this, this just would like be good. like if you if the bathroom break thing is a problem Now, if he had a legitimate thing, like I have a condition, that means that I got to go to the bathroom every day or I have to do it. But he's not saying that, right? He's just saying, oh, I got kind of hung up on this thing or something. Who knows, yeah. And account for it, people. Mm -hmm. You know, If it happens once, then learn from the experience. Like, oh, because of this, I need this. And then maybe what you do is you schedule client, you know, what's something that I used to do is I used to schedule a uh, half hour breaks in between every client. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that gave me just more kind of breathing room, you know? And yeah, right. therefore I was never, uh, up against, you know, the wall regarding my next client. Um, so, uh, and, you know, the feeling of going to therapy and you show up on time because mm-hmm. you don't want to make them wait if they're on time. Right. And you're ready to go. And you're just like, Okay, it's two minutes after. Mm-hmm. It's three minutes. Like, mm-hmm. are, what is this going to be a fifteen minute? Did they forget? Mm-hmm. That is like a terrible place to be in. And all you got to do is get your crap together. And mm. I just, um, I, I just find that to be really annoying. Um, Clearly, your therapist sounds like the perfect therapist for you. And <laughs> um, I'm glad that you're making lemonade out of lemons, but. And maybe this is helpful, you know, maybe he's doing it on purpose, who knows, but...
1: No, he's not.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, I just, I don't know, I just don't understand, I just don't understand. Like, and other, other, because con- there's, there's, some of the smartest people I know, Umberto, for example, he, he I've literally tested his IQ, he is off the, ch- he's, well, he's on the charts, but he is close to the edge. Mm. He's... According on some scales he's like ninety nine point five percent smarter he's 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 smarter than ninety nine point five percent of the population of the planet wow yeah he's like of, he's like really at the top end like,
1: wicked smart
0: and he's chronically late mm-hmm. and he'll always have a good excuse mm. but it, you you never learn from your past mistakes, you know mm. like you never account for the possibility like you're that. Dumb about it, like you can't yeah. be that dumb. You know, you mm-hmm. have. There must be something about this that is just. I don't know, man. It, 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 and it, and it would be one thing if you're late for your own stuff. You know, like you're late to pick up your order for dinner or something, and it's cold. But you know, this is other human beings. Mm-hmm. You know, and you're you're harming other people in the process, and
1: harming. That's a bit. That's a guess. Maybe it's true. Maybe it's not. Who knows?
0: Well, I'm harmed when people are late. When When I have to go to the airport and my friend says they're going to be on time and they don't show up on time and I'm sitting mm-hmm. on the porch for 45 minutes going, I'm going to sure. miss my plane, right. I'm being harmed.
1: Oh, I uh, got it. Got it. I didn't know we were talking about that. Right. Got it. Two, two minutes. I'm not sure if I'm harmed. So I don't want to presume that because... You really don't like this that it necessarily means that there is damage done. Yeah, I'm thinking of a therapist I know who I was one of probably one of the best th- among the best therapists I ever met. I worked with her on a on a team, and um, she's she's just aces, right? If you had her for your therapist, you'd be a very fortunate person. And she would say to us in our team meetings, "I'm chronically 10 minutes late, and it's been going on most of my career." And did career. she say why she said i don't recall the details of this but what she said to us is i don't want a pat solution that i know isn't going to work i've done that already i've done the end the session early thing i've done the she's tried all these things and what she notices is that they don't actually capture whatever the problem is the reason i'm bringing her up isn't so much that we actually solved her late problem i don't think we put a dent in it. What we did was we validated that for some reason it's actually quite hard for her to be on time. But uh, did she ever identify, and I respect this, but did she ever identify, like, this is why I'm late? No. And that's why we that's didn't weird. bother with the, with the pat excuses, because it's probably something psychologic that's happening for her. And if we had time, and the wherewithal, and maybe even the insight at the moment, we maybe would have got somewhere with that, right? So... It's a dialectic, because on the one hand, I understand your point about being late and being on time. I value being on time too. Yeah, you're very on time. No, I'm actually late a fair amount. Oh. Um, even well, to, to me, you're on time. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I try to be. I'm actually usually um, I could be anywhere from on time to two or three minutes late to our uh, every other week podcast. Yeah, obsession. yeah but that's but we don't know, we not, don't have a firm start it's not like you have flexibility around that and so you know yeah yeah um um the other side of the coin is there's it's gonna be something right the transference counter-transference bits of my relationship with my therapist are gonna be somewhere and they happen to be one one of the ways they show up is is here and what I've really appreciated about it is um, um, it's created a sense of flexibility inside me. Now, listen, I'm not letting that guy off the hook. I think it sounds like I am. No. Like I'm saying, well, because I love my therapist, you know, he can do no wrong. Nah. Nah.
0: Well, you, I mean, I'm not talking about your therapist now. I'm talking That's about okay. all the people that have annoyed me or hurt me <laughs> by being late. Because... <laughs> mm-hmm. um, mm. Uh, as an on time person, yeah um, it hurts, it hurts my feelings really hurt you know you. Yeah. because it okay, call it psychological, it is, mm-hmm. but at the same yeah. time like uh, there's where are your priorities, and people have the capability of being on time, you know the pe like like friends of mine who are always late or family members who are always late, if they had a plane to catch they 'd be on time mm-hmm. if they have a job, and they 're going to be fired they 'll be on time. Mm-hmm. If they were, if they won the lottery, and they had to show up by a certain time, they'd be on time. So it's not mm-hmm. like they're incapable.
1: Mm-mm.
0: But uh, I guess you're right in that there's a psychological reason. Mm-hmm. But I guess I would hope that they would prioritize that. You know, you
1: want them to sure.
0: You know that they would say, my psychological trauma is getting in the way of me being a good family member or friend and people depend on me and I made a commitment and I'm going to, I'm going to prioritize that human being in the same way I prioritize being on time for the airplane. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to really empathize with that human and Mm -hmm. understand that me being on time is, is critical. Now for you, Bob, being a couple minutes late, you know, it's, it's not that big of a deal oh for our meetings yeah for you yeah, mm-hmm. and and i get that mm-hmm. i'm really just talking about um and i and i guess i'm kind of yelling at therapists in general and maybe you bob i don't know but <laughs> maybe uh, um <laughs> as a i a very common complaint i get from people is my therapist is late sometimes yeah. and it hurts them yeah and i i hurt for those clients yeah. you know um i can't think i've ever had i don't think i've ever had a therapist who was late like that mm mm-hmm. um, But, yeah, I think, you know, particularly if I was real vulnerable, um, particularly if it was chronic, you know, I and and if they didn't go over, you know, if, if they were 10 Isn't, minutes late and we went over 10 minutes, it's like, okay, what are you going to do? Yeah. But if they didn't, then I, I'd just be like, do you care? You know, yeah. like, it, am I chopped liver over here? <laughs> you right. know, does this matter to you? Do I matter? Right. Um and, uh, you know, I think that's what it comes down to is it, whether it's intended or not, of course it's not intended, it's almost never intended, but it yeah, comes people, across as like, right. yeah, you,
1: I don't matter. So, you know, I, I actually have been going through this for the last several months with one of my clients who I strive to be on time for, but I'm not perfect. And that's the story. The meaning that he makes out of my lateness is that I don't care, which is really interesting because it does not match my inner world. I look at that person and I know, yeah, I care about you. Actually, I actually care about you quite a great deal. I like you, respect you. And I'm late and they're actually not the same. Like there's a differentiation between my care and my punctuality. Now, he doesn't like it, but does it mean I don't care? No. And if I, w- I'm not saying I've strived to be late in order to create this dynamic. I don't. It's just what happened. Um, but we're be we're at the beginning of a really interesting conversation about what it means to him. And that's useful because there's an opportunity for him to learn about something, something I think that's actually quite important about himself and his place in the universe and whether or not he has one. Um, I suspect that my, that there's a, hmm, I'm not sure which of the defense mechanisms it is. It's the one where, hey, if I'm on time, then why can't you be on time? I strive to be on time, and that's how I show people that I care about them. So how come you're not doing that? That must mean that you don't care about me, which, of course, is not true. I do care. I mm. just am late sometimes. So, so, But if we stick with that, if we stick with that paradigm, then we limit him. Mm. But what what do I want for him? I want greater flexibility for him. I want him to recognize that his value is not in his punctuality and that he might very well care about such and such person and it might be really important to him and for some reason maybe practical maybe incidental maybe psychological he happens to be late does he want to what does he want to do does he want to hold that oh i've done a bad thing schema, uh, idea, a story about self, or or does he want to separate himself from his behavior? And I'm guessing that second one is probably in the long run more important for him, even if he doesn't feel like it's true, it's probably more important for him than the first one.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I've ranted about this yeah. occasionally mm-hmm. with you and Berto and others. Yeah, sure. And... Hearing you talk about it has expanded my mind a little bit. Um, I don't think I had gone deeper than my own kind of reactivity. And the idea that, one, someone being late doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. indicate lack of care, right. which, of course, makes sense. Um, and also that—and, of, and of course, it makes sense that being late could be a psychological thing and and sort of— really difficult for someone to change and, mm-hmm. and i'll tell you that overall uh you know because i've been a punctual person since i was a child and yeah i for years have been dealing with it and have adjusted and said you know yeah. i'm gonna let it go and and i i identify certain people as well they're a late person and mm-hmm. and so that's fine you know and and mm-hmm. it'll annoy me kind of but it won't it doesn't get me down and i i i actually if they show up on time, then I'm Mm -hmm. like, I'm like pleasantly surprised. You know what I mean? So it's just a matter of expectations.
1: Understood. Makes sense.
0: But at the same time, hearing you talk about it, I think, um, and especially, I guess for therapy is, um, obviously talking about it, but I don't know. I still hold to, you know, therapists need to get their stuff together. Yeah. And, uh, why would you want to perturb every
1: client in this way? You know, <laughs> not want to. No, for sure. I'll tell you what. I want this is the final thing I'll say about it is when he, when he, when he spoke up, it was really important that he spoke up. Yeah. And he said, Yeah, it bothers me that you're late. And what it, what it says to me is that you don't care. We got to have a, a really, important conversation about that that believe me was really hard for me because i'm like oh god i'm such a bad guy right and that whole thing gets activated Mm. inside me Mm. and it was cool because on the one hand of course it gets activated and also there's this I took I took the opportunity to set that aside and hang in the conversation and feel bad. Okay, fine. Feel bad. Yeah, right. But not get locked into my I'm a bad guy thoughts mm-hmm. and stay with them around it. Oh, it says to you that I don't care. I, I experienced myself as actually caring about you a great deal, but that's what it says to you, that I must not care about you. That's really interesting, isn't it? How could those possibly exist at the same time that I look at me and I'm like, yeah, no, I know I care about you. And you look at me and say, well, because of this behavior, you must not you should, should and we stayed in the tension and we've been staying in the tension since. Um, and we actually spent a session, um, several weeks later entirely on that issue hmm. entirely. And on the one hand, it's probably not what anybody would really love to talk about in therapies. Like maybe they got other fish to fry that day. On the other hand, it was an opportunity for us to be in connection with one another for him to be frustrated and disappointed in me mm-hmm. and for me to survive it and our relationship to survive it and to keep going as opposed to then it's now this stone in our shoes that we walk around with and we're irritated by. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to be late, right? I don't mm-hmm. want to. Um, and if I am, I'm not ducking.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm going to talk to him about it. Cause I know that it's, it's a area where he can have that story can get activated mm-hmm. and I think we both owe it to him to um, stay in the tension and continue to learn Mm -hmm. about it. So we do, Um, and it is excruciating. Mm -hmm. I hate it. Yeah, sort of. Part of me hates it. Part of me is like triggers your affective schema. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because of that. But but part of me, I really like it actually. Because if you lean into it, yeah, right, juicy, yeah, useful, good for him. Yeah, that's good for you. Yeah, good for me too, right?
0: All right, everyone out there, we're going to end this on time. Actually, we're two minutes late. Oh, um, shit. Yeah, of ending it. Bob, you said you want, you wanted to end at 1. It's 1.02. <laughs> so I'm following in your footsteps. Ah! I <laughs> and everyone you don't out, care about me. <laughs> everyone out there, please take care of yourself and be freaking on time because
1: you deserve it. <laughs> <laughs>